everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, last episode, we had Matt Horak and Susanna Polo on. We reviewed X-Men number 49. Uh, Jim Steranko did the cover for the first time, and we get uh, Jim Steranko art in the book we're going to review today. Uh, basically, all you need to know, Cerebro detected a massive mutant army with latent mutants, whatever that means, uh, being uh, gathered by the mutant hypnotist Mesmero, who we're going to talk about today. Uh, after Iceman found Lorna Dane mesmerized 1,200 miles away from her home, uh, he took her back to his apartment where uh, she washed the brown out of her hair, <laughs> revealed it was green. Uh, we learned she's a mutant. Uh, then Mesmero attacks, revealing that Lorna is the daughter of Magneto. That's kind of where we ended off last time. Uh, today, uh, after we do our interview portion, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 50, uh, called Hail Queen of the Mutants uh, from November 1968. Uh, Arnold Drake's the writer, Jim Steranko is the penciler, uh, John Tartaglione's the inker, Herb Cooper on letters, and of course, Stanley as the editor. Uh, but first, we're going to spend some time uh, getting to know our esteemed panel of guests today. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves briefly. Let us know your name, of course, uh, your gender pronouns, uh, where we might know you from, what are your, uh, what are you best known for? Uh, and at the end of the podcast, we'll have you plug any work that you're doing upcoming. But let's go ahead and begin with the uh, the incredible artist, uh, Mr. Steve Rude. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hi. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me on here. Um, so happy you're here. Yeah, you're you're very welcome. Um, well, um, I've I've loved comics since since I was uh, able to read, pretty much. You know, we, it was a thing in our neighborhood, but there was only one guy that really collected them. And because he would, there was only one guy that collected them. He was the guy that I, I would go over to his house and read his books. And he just, uh, he was a manic collector. And, and so I just went down, read his books, a lot of them with the Spider-Mans, but it was the Ramita age when the Spider-Mans came out that I was reading and he bought. And of course, Kirby was going very strong. <clears throat> so having seen that, uh, going going into it in, into those issues smack dab into the mid '60s. That was those were the things that I kind of imprinted on, as I like to say. And from there, God, um, I rediscovered comics in high school. I kind of dropped them for a while, but I do remember seeing an article in the New York Times. This was in middle school, and they used to have a section. You know how they used to have. Um, the papers from around the world in these little big, long, like bungee stick kind of things. <clears throat> these bamboo sticks that they would fold the papers into. And I just happened to pick one of those up one time. And there was this big color article on Jack Kirby and how he was defecting the DC. But at the time, I just kind of dimly took, took note of that. <clears throat> um, but high school came around uh, and I started to rediscover comics. First, I wanted to see if Kirby was still working because <clears throat> in the time that it passed, which is really only like two or three years, that was like an, um, an eon to me when you're, when you're that age. The, the time passes <laughs> in a different way than it does nowadays. So that got me back in the comic book uh, trail. And that's when I started to get serious about them. And I started to draw from comics and I kept drawing and I kept drawing and um, I fell in love with them. And um, I don't know, pretty much I just kind of took, took off from there. And I think it was all the practice that I did that just eventually landed me in a place where 
I was eventually good enough to get work. But it didn't quite work out like that because I never got work for Marvel. I never got work for DC. But there was a little operation going on in the town that I was born in, Madison, Wisconsin. There was something in the air. It was 1980. And you know how the decades always, there's always a change coming about in the 19, uh, or rather when the decades change. And that, that was true for us in Madison. People started to look beyond uh, just the fact that most companies were <clears throat> were stationed in, in New York or or the uh, the West Coast. So they had this brilliant idea: why don't we just do our own comics? So they did, and we were me, me and Mike Barron were a part of that. Mike Barron was the the writer of Nexus, and <clears throat> timing, timing and good fortune, and we were really hot to trot. We just wanted to show the world what we could do. And it took off from there. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Nexus and your subsequent work. We'll focus a little bit on your Marvel work today, but I've been a fan of your gorgeous pencils for a really, really long time. Um, let's pause there for just a second and uh, get to know our, our second guest, uh, Mr. Hugh Sturbikov. Hi, hi, Hugh. How are you? I'm great. Well, I'm just getting over COVID, so I'm not fantastic, but I'm good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> we had our turn in my family a few weeks back. I sympathize. I hope you're feeling much better. Uh, I think every day I think I am, and then I wake up and then it's not over it yet. But yeah, I, I'm vaxxed out the wazoo, so it hasn't been bad. <laughs> I'm sure I'll just a couple more days. Uh, Hugh, tell people where they might know you from. Um, it's hard to guess. I've written just about everything. I started writing video game reviews. I've written for film, television, animation, uh, comic books. I wrote a novel. I was host of a podcast. I'm probably most well known for Robot Chicken. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, nominated for a couple of Emmys for that. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a comic book called Freshman. The comic book fans may may or may not remember. Um, and I wrote exactly one Marvel comic book and it was about Mesmero. <laughs> and that's why I'm here today. Yeah, I, uh, I'll just I'll announce this in advance and we'll talk more about it later. But I was reviewing the character Mesmero's history and found this gorgeous story you did. Uh, I didn't realize when I emailed you that it was the only book you'd done for Marvel, but uh, but what a funny character to have, to have worked on. <laughs> it was bizarre. It was a really weird experience. It was a weird time, and uh, I'm super proud of it. I just thought the world had forgotten about it. I couldn't imagine anybody remembered it, So, but I'm no, thrilled. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, finally, we have uh, Luis Valera Suarez with us returning to the podcast. Hi, Luis. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's nice to see you. Tell people where they might know you from. Um, well, I'm not like a very well-known person, um, but I, right now I'm working on a substack called The New Futurists, and I am um, illustrating some trading cards, which are like going to be old school type of 90s X-Men tra style trading cards. Um, so that's something that I'm working on right now. But right now I'm just, you know, I'm getting started on my career. I just recently graduated from SCAD, and so... Uh, that's that's what I'm up to. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your art, as you know. Uh, it's really nice to have you back. And then finally, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm based in Salt Lake City. Uh, regular listeners of the podcast know me, obviously, as the host of Grand Malkin Lane. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, uh, uh, memoirist, and, uh, and a documentary filmmaker. Uh, I am thrilled to have uh, this panel of guests with us today. So for the first little while, um, I want to spend some time talking to uh, to Steve a little bit about some of your focused uh, Marvel work, uh, but also your historic run on Nexus. Uh, and 
Well, actually, let's begin. One thing we both have in common, although very different stories, is we've both made documentaries. You put a documentary out a while back about your own life called uh, called Rude Dude. Tell us a little about that. Uh, the Rude Dude thing came up. Um, it actually originated at a convention in New York many, many years ago. And um, at first, I was I was kind of indifferent about it because I thought, how are they going to do this? I mean, I'm not an actor. Are they going to follow me around with a camera and I have to act and be something, somebody that I'm not. Um, but it didn't work out like that. It worked out pretty good. Actually, the filmmaker was very competent and a very nice guy. And uh, <clears throat> took him four years to put this together. Uh, the finished film was, uh, was well done, but I think it would, it really fell short about what it could have been. Um, <clears throat> but I think the filmmaker was kind of focused on, presenting a kind of a narrow spectrum of what he, what the thrust of the film wanted to be. So he took a lot of the humorous aspects of my life out. And that's the one thing that I would have um, included a lot more to get a full, a full viewing of the total personality of me. Um, Other than, other than that, um, um, you know, I, I have not seen it in a long time. I watched, so I, it, uh, I watched it in preparation for this, and it's it's really informative. It, it does come across as a little bit intense, but I think it shows a side to the industry and to uh, what it's like to be an artist in today's day and age in some really unique ways. Uh, I was really impressed with your honesty uh, in talking about bipolar disorder, which was a really beautiful part of the film as well. Speaking as a clinical social worker, uh, seeing someone manage that and talking about the, the the ins and outs, I thought it was really powerful. So really beautiful work. Well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I learned a long, a long time ago through various people that I've met in various circumstances that I've gone through in life that um, trying to hide things is a, is a lot more it's kind of a, it's kind of a no-win kind of a thing. You're actually, you're actually, when you try to hide things from people, that's when they start to probe and um, inquire in ways that may not be the way you want things to go in your life. But if you just come out and tell people, <clears throat> what you end up happening, what ends up happening is, one, um, you meet tons and tons of people that have the same problem. <clears throat> And, um, and two, you, you, you give a sense of relief to people that, that, um, they feel like they have, that they feel like they're the only guys in the world that have this. Yeah. Yeah. But what, apparently what I have is something called, um, oh, what is it called? Um, um, I'm thinking it's, but it's something different from, from bipolar. They got a name for everything nowadays. Right. But it's, um, uh, borderline personality. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. That Chad. So whatever that is, I guess I have that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and for a lot of people who struggle with different types of uh, of symptoms, even having something labeled and named can bring such a a beautiful place of understanding uh, for for individuals. Uh, I think it can change a lot of things. Uh, So your work as an artist has gone on for a very long time now. You've had a historic run on the character Nexus, who I know is really beloved to a lot of people. Uh, uh, ran for quite some time. Tell us uh, a little bit about the hero Nexus. Well, you know, when people ask me what is Nexus about, I, I, 
it's, it's kind of funny that I really don't know what to tell them. I mean, <clears throat> to encapsulate Nexus in a, in a sentence or two, I always kind of draw a blank, which is kind of funny since I'm the, I'm the artist and I've been drawing it for over 100 issues here. Um, I think others are probably more qualified to speak of what the book is about than the guy who draws the damn thing. I, I don't even know. Um, I know he's, he's a, I look at Nexus as, as, a, as, as a real kind of a guy. He's, he's very nuanced, like a real person is. He's got these conditions in life, and he has to deal with them. And he's got a girlfriend, and they had a baby. Uh, after like 100 issues, they finally had a baby. I don't think they're actually married. I don't know if the, the act of the ceremony of marriage is actually uh, still intact in, in the 25th century. But I really don't draw the 25th century. I think I draw a version that's probably less than 100 years from now. <laughs> well, that's, that's just my, my, the way I draw things. I mean, I'm, I'm a product of the 1960s and Star Trek and Hanna-Barbera cartoons. <clears throat> but I, I, I think really when I think about Nexus, I think about if you're this guy and you've got, you've got, you live on this, this moon at the far end of the galaxy, and you've got these powers, and you've got to you've got to get up every day and deal with life. Um, and after you drink your cup of coffee or whatever they drink at that time, what do you do? Well, you've got to go out and, and kill these guys that are really mass murderers. Um, Baron and I, you know, Baron's the, the the creator of really the true creator of Nexus. Uh, I got to hand it to him. Um, <clears throat> but we used to get together, God, back in the um, late seventies. In early 80s, that was a great time. We were so, such young guys. We'd get together um, in Baron's apartment. Baron kept his, his apartment at freezing temperature. I remember that. And it was just in December, and he would walk, he would walk around in this thermal underwear stuff and these <laughs> boots, and I was absolutely freezing. And he never once upped the temperature for anyone that, that came over to stay. But <clears throat> we'd just talk and, and get out the tracing paper and, do a few drawings of this and that. Baron came up with the, the lightning bolt and the visor. And <clears throat> I came up with this and, and that. But <clears throat> both of us are really bothered by the fact that, you know, uh, if, you, if you look at, you know, the way we thought in 1981 when Baron, we both thought of Nexus to now, <clears throat> we're very bothered by the sense that um, there's, there's the laws, but there's, there's very little sense of justice. They're completely different to me. And it's the fact that there's no justice is what really gets under my skin. Um, so Nexus is kind of the antidote uh, to whatever the, the law says versus <clears throat> somebody who's been killed in, in cold blood or murdered or tortured or whatever. That stuff that goes on every day in the world that nobody can account for. And it's, it's too heinous to even try to comprehend. Well, Nexus is the guy that deals with these guys. So I'm all for that. So it's always kept me interested in working on this character. It's like he was a real person. It's it's rare to see uh, characters non-Marvel in DC, at least, have such longevity. Uh, I mean, we get some examples of that, like Spawn and Ninja Turtles and Savage Dragon, right? But uh, it's it's rare to see characters have, have such a long-lasting uh, place in the world and and the community consciousness. Now, after your work on Nexus, you got to do some Marvel stuff along the way, and I wanted I want to ask some questions about that. 
Uh, I first became aware of you when I read uh, Hulk versus Superman, which is such an interesting uh, book, uh, very unexpected. And you got to do that with the legendary uh, Roger Stern. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about uh, Hulk versus Superman, if you will. Well, Roger handed in a, a great script. I mean, that's always where everything starts. You can't go forward unless the script is solid, and it was. Um, the 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 <clears throat> the beginning story of Hulk versus Superman actually has its its birthplace. Um, I was told from Stan Lee. Stan Lee, uh, somebody called me up and said, <clears throat> I think it was probably the editor, Glenn Greenberg, who was a great guy. He said, look, um, how would you like to work in a book with Stan Lee? I said, well, sure. Um, what is it about? He said, well, it's the Hulk versus Superman. And I said, well, is there a script that goes with this thing? Because I'd love to read it. <clears throat> and Glenn goes, well, it's not really a script. It's a paragraph. Really? Okay. So <clears throat> so how many pages is it? Is it like five, six pages or whatever? He said, no, it's 48. So I've got to turn a paragraph <laughs> 48 pages. Well, that's a, the, that's got to be the laziest sense of a, of a script I've ever seen in my life. So I <clears throat> I know it couldn't work from a, a paragraph. So I, I said, no, I can't. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. <clears throat> so Roger Stern came along and, and did a, a full script. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's how it started. A couple of things I remember about that book. One is the, the research was insane. Um, <clears throat> there was a there was a scene where uh, so, uh, Superman and Hulk were fighting in a an old country um, kind of a um, what would you call it like a like a saloon? No, it wasn't a saloon. It was um, <clears throat> kind of a country store where you you buy you know soda and chips and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. And I was I was actually on vacation at the time, and I was looking everywhere for the right kind of country store. And so having found one, I had to go in and take all these shots of what this thing looked like. This is what every artist who's worth anything has to do. Um, so I did that and I, I took shots of all these things. And, um, and then you have to work out the choreography of this fight. It can't just be a slug thing because that's not very imaginative. You've got to really use your noggin here. And of course, since I base a lot of what I do on the, on the ingenuity of Jack Kirby, who thought of a thousand ways to, and to do a fight scene, um, I was, I was kind of, I'm always challenged by what I can dream up of what to do with a fight scene. So that's one of them. <clears throat> the other thing was, um, the censorship thing that Marvel was uh, doing at the time, DC was doing it um, pretty heavy-handedly, heavy and Marvel was doing it. And <clears throat> the stuff I did was so innocent. And I always had a problem with, with the nonsense that um, <clears throat> the legal people have, have started to do in, in taking over the business, where <clears throat> the most harmless little things that are basically just a bunch of in-jokes, it, it can be the size of your little pinky. And they will, the legal people will see that. Well, first the editors will see it and they'll tell me to take it out. And this is complete nonsense. Um, I, I have a problem with it because depending on who you work with at, at the, the, the various decades over, over time, this can go from no problem 
it's fun to, oh no, you're going to offend somebody or <clears throat> you're tramping on somebody's copyright infringement. Well, I guess this goes back to law versus justice. <clears throat> um, it's just silly. And <clears throat> I kind of um, put this under the umbrella of silly adult games that they play. Tomorrow, this whole thing could be lifted and we'll have a good laugh over it. <clears throat> and all the little funny things that I put in, the harmless little funny things would go back in and everyone will have a good laugh and, and enjoy the comic even more than they would have before they were taken out. Sure. Um, so I have a real problem with, um, with people that um, feel that duty of censorship when it doesn't need to be there in the first place. But that's the way the world works, and it's worked like that for a good 30 years now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, Hugh, have you had a similar experience uh, in turning in scripts for, for companies where they kind of heavily edit? Yeah, that's why I only wrote one Marvel comic. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I had that experience. Not, I had a great experience with Marvel, but um, uh, I had just come out with this Top Cow comic, and sort of a lot of editors, companies were sort of courting me, and I went really far down the road with DC, and um, I finally had to walk away. Uh, they they hired me for a year on the Teen Titans or the Titans, and I kept turning in revised work, and they kept changing it because there was a crossover. And they asked me to bring a character back to life, and they killed him in the crossover. They brought him back to life and killed him in the time that I was working. They asked me to do something else. Do something which, else. Which character? Aqualad. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, and, uh, finally, um, finally I gave them a piece of my mind and that was the end of my chance of ever working at DC again. And, uh, I honestly can't remember what happened with Marvel. It was a great experience, but I just realized that writing superhero comics was not for me, you know, yeah. um, just the editorial burden was too much. I grew up loving comics. I mean, God, I had every issue of Nexus. Um, when I was a kid, comics were my world. I, by the time I got to college in the mid nineties, I had every appearance of Spider-Man, every one, and I'd read them all. And, um, and I always thought that would be my dream. But as I started to work as a writer, I realized that working on my own stuff was much more fulfilling. Um, so yeah, but I have had that experience and I'm working in television is the ultimate sacrifice. I shot a pilot for the CW a few years ago called Transylvania. And, um, the second that we started shooting, everything was a sacrifice. You know, it was the old, you know, universal monsters, but we couldn't call them the Wolfman. We couldn't use Frankenstein's neck bolts. Every great thing got taken away for some dumb reason. And in some of the cases, it was simply because nobody would fight for me. Nobody would help me. Sure. Um, we couldn't use the name Transylvania because Sony owned Hotel Transylvania and CBS Studios who produced the show. They wouldn't even start the fight for me. Like they wouldn't make the call. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. We can't call a show Transylvania because they own Hotel Transylvania. It's a place. How can somebody own the name of a place? Um, so yeah, this is obvious. Yes, this is a deep seated uh, lifelong fight that I've had. Um, when you're a kid and you're creative, the world is just yours. You can do anything you want. You can sit down and make the Green Goblin meet Batman or whatever you want. Sure, yeah. And then um, the real world starts to come in and it just starts to break your little kid heart over and over and over. Um, and uh, I've struggled with that as a creator and as a fan, you know?
We've explored that on the podcast a little bit. I've, I've interviewed a number of creators now, and I, I think there's a lot of people who've had very similar experiences. And one of the things that comes up often for fans, we relate to the characters and the stories without giving it much thought of what was uh, what was taken out or what was revised or what was pulled off. You know, yeah. you, you meet creators who will plan five years of a book and only get to tell three stories or someone whose art has changed six times before it gets published. And uh, interestingly enough, that's often your most read or most viewed work uh, and often the most beloved as a result, but it can leave such a bitter taste in people's mouths sometimes. Um, yeah. the, com- the company's not the same as the entity we create around the characters that we love so often. Um, let's let's change the conversation for a little bit to the X-Men uh, directly. A uh, question for all three of you. Uh, Luis, you start. Uh, what was the first X-Men comic book you ever picked up, if you remember? Oh, um, I believe it was um, X-Men season one, which was like a retelling of the 60s era of the X-Men. Uh, it I I believe that was the first X Men comic I read, um, and I loved it. Uh, it was one. Was of it uh, was it X Men Children of the Atom by chance? No, it's called X Men Season One. X Men Season One. I don't remember yeah. that one. Okay. Um, the artist is um, Jamie McKelvey. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, um, oh. You're yeah. thinking of X Men First Class. Right. Yeah. yeah it's. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's called Season One. I think I I can't remember, but it was a while ago that I read it. But it is based on the first class team. Um, that was the first X Men comic I read because I was like, you know, I I wanted to start from the beginning, but I didn't want to go all the way to the sixty to the actual sixties comics. Even though like I I later on did end up doing that, but um, yeah, that was one of the things that I just loved and and I thought it was a cool retelling of the original stories and. Um, yeah, that was that was my start into X-Men comics. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast the way we are, again, which our longtime listeners would know, is a lot of people know the X-Men from the cartoon or the movies, but they've never read the 60s stuff. So it's really fun to go back and explore the early mythos that everybody, you know, kind of came from. Uh, Hugh, how about you? Do you remember your first book, your first X-Men book? Um, it would have been the uh, uh, Chris Claremont run, you know, with John Byrne. And sure, then I know yeah. I went back when I was a big time collector as a kid. In the um, the mid to late '80s, I bought all of the. Um, basically, it was '96, right when they restarted issue number '96. Was that mm-hmm. the number? Uh, '94, so, I think. '94. Okay, so, don't quote me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. When the reruns, the reprints ended, and they started new. I bought all of those and giant size number one. So it was that era, and then up through like um, the 200s. Um, Chris, uh, John Romita Jr. got in there and Storm got her mohawk. So yeah. it was that run through through like Jim Lee, you know, and the new X-Men number one. I probably knew more about this than you expected. No, um, no, not at all, actually. I'm not yeah. surprised. I mean, Spider-Man was my guy. Um, and I didn't even like, but I, there was a long time where I just literally read everything. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know that I can tell you the first issue I picked up, but certainly... Those early Dark Phoenix was, you know, where I fell in love. And it's the one that really, you know, sat with me the most. Days of Future Past. And yeah. When the books finally started being good to their female characters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I do remember as a kid going back and getting some of the early X-Men issues. I want I want to say 63 was when they went on hiatus and just started doing reprints. 
I don't know. I, that's what I'm thinking of on the top of my head. But anyway, yeah, they were weird, you know. They, they, they were weird. Stanley had that weird voice, and it, it was fun, though. But, yeah, they were – but, I mean, wasn't everybody a little bit – the world was a different place back then. I don't know if I can hold them accountable, you know, in a in a, uh, in a in a in a vacuum for how they treated female characters as opposed to – everybody else we're um, getting we're getting ready to record uh for for the patreon um an episode about bernard the poet i don't know if you guys know who that is at all he's the guy that used to perform beat poetry for the x-men uh in the in the 60s coffee a go-go shop and uh i was i was researching these like beatnik coffee shops in the 60s and like listening to youtube clips of people performing and i'm like holy shit this was a different time when this book came out it was a very very different world uh, um, uh, Steve, you mentioned your love of Jack Kirby, and we, we've mentioned on the pod before, but for so often, many uh, artists that were being brought into Marvel were, were specifically told to emulate Kirby. They'd be taught to trace over his pencils. They wanted everything to kind of look the same. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Jim Stranka, who we're going to talk about today a bit, was one of the first kind of artists at Marvel that kind of broke that mold and did something very different for a while. Uh, so do you remember your first X-Men book? Um, I, uh, I, I really don't, um, back in the sixties, I was, I bought comics based on the covers. Yeah. And if I didn't like the cover, I wouldn't buy it. So that was my criteria back then for whether I bought a comic book. So that's the power of the cover right there. Um, I was a fan of, uh, the solidly books drawn by Kirby or Romita. So that would be Spider-Man and anything, anything that Kirby drew. Yeah. And that was, uh, 1966. I have kind of, um, looked at as the primo time of Kirby's apex of talent. Sure. If you look at his pencils back then, they were, they were just on fire. And by, by, by 68 or late 67, that's when they reduced the pages. So that took a took a bite out of Jack. Um, they they didn't have to do that. I mean, Jack could have continued to work that size, but you know, sometimes these these dictums come down. And back then, if you if you don't fall in in line, you know, you're you're kind of ostracized a little bit. Um, but it didn't have to happen like that. But you know, things back then, things at the time they happen are are done a certain way. They change with with every year, with every decade. But I, that's why I'm always against people making judgments about a time past when they, when they're living in a different time, like today. They make judgments of things 30, 40 years ago, uh, or things in the early uh, 1900s from the perspective of somebody li uh, living now. It's a completely different time, a completely different way of thinking. And things were nothing like the way they were now. They change all the time. <clears throat> sometimes they get better. Most times I see them getting worse sometimes. Um, <clears throat> I'm getting off on a tangent here, but- uh, Oh, no, you're you know, great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we've, we've talked about that. When, when you put something out, I think, into the public consciousness and it's viewed by newer generations and stays in the public consciousness, I think it's important to kind of have both perspectives. You got to remember what the time was like. And of course, people are going to view things under a different lens. So for example, in the 1960s comics that we're reading on this podcast, there are rampant examples of what we would now consider sexism. 
uh, girls being called female and uh, and wench and uh, kind of tossed into the background quite often. And from today's perspective, which is very much about uh, equal rights, it's a very different time. And I, I think it's okay to do both, uh, but I certainly understand it's important to put things in context back then. Now, you had the unique job, Steve, of of putting out a world famous book uh, that is that is so beloved by many. Uh, along with uh, Joe Casey, which is the X-Men Children of the Atom series. Now, for our longtime listeners, we haven't mentioned this book specifically on the podcast before. It's a six-issue miniseries. Uh, Steve, I believe you drew the first three or four issues. The art is just gorgeous. And Joe Casey took the original teens, researched all of the backstories of the X-Men characters that we've been exploring on the pod, and then put them in a unique style, kind of exploring the prehistory of the X-Men from a different place. Now, I believe... The uh, the standard at Marvel is this book is considered non-canon because it does change some of the early mythos. I think the biggest change in the book, if you read it, is all of the X-Men, the five original X-Men are on are in the same high school, which is not something that took place back in the 60s books, as an example. But it's really, really gorgeous. It, uh, it pushes the mutant metaphor even farther. It introduces uh, a group of anti-mutants that are very almost Nazi-like in their determination to destroy mutants and be prejudiced against them. Uh, and my favorite part of the book is the pencils. Uh, Steve, your, your work with the original X-Men characters, uh, the way you drew Jean Grey with, uh, with her butterflies in the background, the way you drew uh, a very orphan, waifish-looking uh, uh, Cyclops or uh, a freezing-to-death Iceman. It's, it's really gorgeous work. And we get a rather menacing Professor X in this, who is quite uh, manipulative with his telepathy and really pushing limits as he sets up his school. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, not only your work with X-Men Children of the Atom, but how it was received by the public. It's really gorgeous work. Well, this, to start off with your last um, question about how it was received, I never know how it's received. The only sense I ever get of how things are received is uh, either through uh, letters. Now, it, it would be emails, of course. Um, or showing up at conventions and, and having somebody, you know, tell me. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I can tell you about, there's a couple of things, like when you, you brought up the Hulk and Superman, there's always memories that go along with the books. Um, <clears throat> with, with the X-Men, uh, the first was uh, meeting Joe Casey. And I don't think I, I'd met him before, but he came over. We were both living in, in L.A. And he came over to he came over to my house and he's, I remember him, I think I met him once before. He was um, really dapper looking, really, really cool looking guy and dressed to the nines. And but when I saw him come over to my house, he was dressed like a slob. He had glasses on and he just looked like a, a an average guy. And I, I just, I took to him right away. He was, he's somebody that reminded me of somebody that I grew up with when I was like five years old. And I just, uh, we just fell into place right away. And it was um, he had this funny look in his face when I opened the door, uh, and it was it was just fun from there on. His script was just great. Joe is one of these guys that um, you know you always talk about. Well, I see myself in this guy. There was a lot lot of that in Joe in, and me. Um, <clears throat> Joe's an upstart. Um, I'm kind of known for being the same kind of person, not going with the status quo uh, if we don't agree with it. Um, we're known for pushing our principles regardless of what might happen to us. I think that's important. Um, 
Another thing about that book was it was another book that was heavily researched. I actually took a trip to Washington, D.C. and toured the FBI building because there was a lot of stuff I had to research. Um, The thing about these books is you've got to pull out, you got to remember that everything you do is your your credibility and your um, your reputation is on the line with every single thing you do. So you've got to you've really got to take this extremely seriously. And the, every every book you do up until that time is the sum total of everything you've learned up until then. Yeah. So you've got to prove it in every book that you do. And the research again in in those books particularly were were a, it was a lot of work. In Marvel, um, the Marvel editor um, decided to do something that I, I didn't really agree with. He decided to, and this was standard policy with Marvel back then, they decided to solicit the book before I even started on it. Hmm. Well, that could be a problem <clears throat> when they didn't know when I was able to turn this stuff in because <clears throat> it wasn't going to be dashed off. That was that was for sure. I had to invent the, the entire world that Joe, Joe's script gave me. Um, but if you look through that book, everything you see there had to be, had to be invented. There was nothing really handed to me except for the characters. It's uh, comics are a tremendous amount of work. And my friend Paul Glacey said one time, even bad comics <laughs> are a tremendous amount of work. And that's that's no kidding. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, that's the thing about comics. They, they challenge your every waking moment. There's no sloppy. There's no ever ever a sense of sloughing off. Or um, if you want to really damage your reputation and and ruin your yourself in the eyes of fans, just uh, low, try lowering your standards because they will sense that and they will they will not receive it very very well. <clears throat> so Steve, you you initially came uh, to my mind to contact you regarding the podcast when I was going back to read the different books that explored the early days of the X Men because again that's what we're focusing on the pod primarily is the '60s books and when when you compare Children of the Atom to the original books it's it's really gorgeous uh, but it takes the metaphor to a uh, kind of a better place Joe Casey's script work is really really impressive uh, my single favorite image from your book or your run on there is the cover of the first issue where it's the five different teenage X-Men looking very, very individual and very uh, kind of huddled together, but all separate from each other as, as their kind of heroic presences loom in the background. And obviously these are characters that are so beloved. Uh, and when you drew this in 99, um, uh, people had been in love with these characters for, for decades. Did you enjoy your work on Children of the Atom? Yes, because <clears throat> I think everything really comes down to the script. And, you know, that's pretty much common knowledge among everyone who ever does a project, whether it's a movie or, um, you know, a comic book or anything where there's a script involved. Um, <clears throat> the people that did the original Star Trek, they they slaved over these scripts to make sure everything makes, made sense and there was the right kind of beats going on. And there was <clears throat> a sense of um, <clears throat> pacing where there was violence and then and then there was uh, a slow moment and then there was action again and it was a lot of variety in the kind of action they told and they put these writers through hell i mean even guys that were well-seasoned writers and you know people give give the word micromanaging a really bad name um but in my in my in my mind that is the only way to make sure you get what you want 
you should do it benignly. You should, do it, you should be as fair as possible about it. You got to put on your, your diplomacy hat. But, um, you know, I may be in charge of my Nexus animated show someday. So all this stuff is going through my mind. And it has been for the last 35 years of how I'm going to deal with these hundreds of people that I'm going to be in charge of. Um, and um, it's going to be a moment. <laughs> Let me tell you. It can but take over. It can take over your whole life. Oh, it's going to. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be the biggest challenge of my my career. I'm just hoping I can survive it. Um, Hugh, let me ask you the question here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, getting the gig on X Men Unlimited. We're going to talk. Uh, save save your thoughts on Mesmero for a bit. We'll get to him in the issue. But tell me the story about uh, how you got the work on X Men Unlimited. I wish I I wish I remembered. It was so long ago. <laughs> um, I know that. Uh, I know that everybody really liked my work on my creator-owned uh, comic, Freshman. And I remember Bob Harris approached me. It's, he came to see us speak. And he approached me and asked me if I wanted to write Spider-Man. And I was like, yeah, um, because that's what I talked about the most. And I think he put Warren Simons in touch with me. Um, and we had talked about a Spider-Man miniseries. Um, and then they, he wanted me to write this book. They had an opening as a test. And he loved it. That's why he decided to get the issue painted. But I can't for the life of me remember what happened next. I don't remember why that thing wasn't published or how I lost touch with Warren or why I didn't pursue it. It's weird because I know as a kid growing up, comics writing comics was my whole life, my whole goal. But by then I sort of realized what it was like to, to work in this, in that, in the superhero Marvel and DC world. I think I realized I didn't want that so bad or as much as I wanted screenwriting. It was seemed almost as difficult to break in um, to either of them. And I had already had so many inroads. I had sold a lot of stuff in film and television. I just think I, uh... so yeah, I, <laughs> I don't have a great memory of it. I'm sorry. No, no, so that's okay. Yeah. yeah. That's but okay. I, it started with Bob Harris approaching me after he read my comic freshman. Okay, and we're, I'm going to have a lot to say about Mesmero in a few minutes. Yeah. So that uh, yeah. Steve, if I had to choose one other favorite uh, of your work, uh, your your work, and of course to X Men fans, Fabian Nicieza is uh, super beloved as well. But your Spider Man Lifeline storyline uh, is is also just gorgeous, uh, and I'll be posting some images from these as we as we advertise the episode when it comes out. But uh, just just beautiful work. I read that. Uh, I read both of those books actually when they very first came out. Uh, and was like, God, these pencils are just beautiful. Really, really great work, man. My homage to John Romita, the guy, the Spider-Man artist that I grew up with. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we've done a few of Romita's works uh, on the podcast before. We've talked about a lot of his stuff. Uh, just, just legendary, of course. And Romita Jr., uh, <laughs> legendary as well, but in a very different way. Um, we, uh, if, if I was to ask each of you who your very favorite uh, X-Men hero and or villain is, who comes to mind for each of you? Oh my God. Go for so it. Many, so many to choose from, obviously. Jeez. Uh, uh, villain, probably Magneto. I don't know. Um, there's been so many great heroes. So many. I mean, I don't want to say somebody boring, you know. Um, <laughs> I found it interesting in later issues when the Beast was lamenting, you know, his physicality and, you know, what had been taken away from him and what um, 
how things could have been different if he didn't look the way he does. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll say Beast, but um, you know, I'm with everybody right there. I love hot-headed Cyclops, and you know, obviously I love Jean Grey and Phoenix, and uh, I love Emma Frost. I love the Hellfire Club stories when I was a kid. Um, so yeah. Uh, if you're reading the current X books, all of these characters feature prominently. Beast has become uh, the leader of the mutant CIA, basically. He's gone on to like start wars in countries and weaponize things. He's a very he's a very compelling kind of Kissinger like character at this point. Uh, but we love to hate him. <laughs> it's fun to go oh, back wow. and read. It's fun to read Fun Beast. Uh, Steve, do you have a favorite? I, I really don't because <clears throat> of all the books that I I gravitated to and and fell in love with uh, and kind of based my career on it at a certain point. Uh, the X Men wasn't one of them. Um, I was fixated on anything that Kirby drew and the Spider-Mans and um, that was pretty much it. So probably Hugh and Luis have probably a better opinion on that than I do. Yeah. Did you have a favorite to draw in uh, Children uh, of the Atom? <clears throat> you know, I, I did not. I mean, <clears throat> when you, when you get a script and I, this is kind of going back to a quote that I, I heard from the famous artist course and uh, a guy named Albert Dorn was in charge of that. He goes, once, once you exchange uh, a handshake or an agreement that you're going to be doing something. It doesn't matter if you're be, being paid 50 cents or $5,000. It's time to do your work and it better be good. <clears throat> Fair. Uh, Luis, do you have a favorite? Um, well, I really love Emma Frost. You know, Emma Frost and Jean Grey are like my favorites. Um, I guess I tend to gravitate more towards the female characters. Sure. Just like just as a kid, those were the ones that really spoke to me. And Emma Frost in particular, just because I thought um, I I actually got to know her from the Wolverine and the X-Men animated series. Um, Because I unlike I feel most people, I don't know, but I feel like I I, um, came to know the X-Men from the movies and the TV shows. You know, I'm young enough that that was my intro to to these characters um and so in that show like she showed up and i was like who is this like i, I have no idea who this is um because she wasn't in the movies and and i was just like oh, i love her so much like she had this confidence that i that i wanted to have myself and so um she kind of became one of my favorites but recently i've been reading some of the claremont um, i've been making my way through the x-men uh comics and i've been reading through claremont currently and I've really come to like Storm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who was a character before I started reading that reading that. I I liked her, you know, she was all right, but like in the movies and, and some of the other shows, she wasn't always like a prominent character. So they I never quite get her character. right in the movies. Yeah. Right. You know, like she was all right, but now that I'm actually like reading her stories and being like, oh, like she's like a full-on badass, you know, she's yeah. she's had this tough life you know and and she has a lot of compassion and she's super powerful and, and, and again awesome. for for those following the current book storm is currently the queen of mars which is such a weird thing but it's amazing uh in the x-men red books uh so check those out if you haven't uh uh steve do you know or are you acquainted with jim stranko at all oh yeah <clears throat> if i wasn't i would be ashamed of myself uh i've had several moments good moments with with jim and uh, I remember the first time I met him, it was, God, a good 15, 20 years ago. And I was shaking hands with him. He goes, your hands are sweaty. <laughs> and I, I didn't feel like I should be sweaty. But uh, I tell you, meeting this meeting this, this guy, this legend, uh, 
boy, that was really something. Yeah, I was I was of an age. This is the best thing about my age. <clears throat> I had a chance to meet everybody, everybody who ever came before me, even going back to the most golden of golden age guys. So <clears throat> I got to meet them all. And I have that legacy tucked into my my heart every day. I sit at the drawing board and it. So now it's up to guys like me to tell the stories now that they're gone of people that they'll never meet nowadays. Yeah. yeah. Did you get to meet uh, to, to meet John Ramita as well? Oh, yeah. In fact, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I made a pilgrimage to his house. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I'm the kind of guy that, you know, you know how everyone talks about, oh, I would never want to meet my hero or <clears throat> um, I would never want to intrude. Well, I'm happy to intrude. I just, you know, go busting in their house and hang out and have lunch with them. And <clears throat> until they kick me out, I'm just going to stay there and talk with them. Uh, we've had the pleasure of interviewing some of the classics on this podcast, Linda Feid and Roy Thomas and Steve Englehart and a few others. Uh, we have reached out to John Romita, but he's 92. <laughs> I've also reached out to Jim Steranko, who is 83. Uh, but if either of you are listening, I would love to talk to you anytime and, and hear any of your memories. Um, anytime we uh, see someone new join the books in the 60s, I like to do a little bit of a biography on them. So let me introduce uh, Jim Stranko to our listeners really quickly. And this is this is just kind of a brief one. I did a lot of research and summarized. He's a really fascinating guy. So Jim Stranko was born in 1938. His parents immigrated from Ukraine to work in the Pennsylvania coal mines. Uh, he drew all the time as a youth. Uh, he studied self-defense and learned to fight back because of a lot of kids bullied him as a kid. Uh, he also studied magic and performed as a fire eater with circuses and later as an illusionist and an escape artist and a magician. Got in trouble uh, with the law a couple times for some burglaries. Uh, then he formed a band. Uh, he claims he put the very first Go-Go Girl on stage with his rock band. Her name was Miss Twist. <laughs> if you don't know Go-Go Dancing, look it up. It's amazing. Uh, after he had a long career in advertising art, he started working on comics in 1957 although he eventually turned primarily to advertising. Uh, more prominently, he did some books in 1966 when he collaborated with Stan Lee and did the infamous series, uh, Nick Fury's uh, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. If you haven't read it, go back and look at these. The art in his, is unlike anything you've ever seen. People can try to mimic Stranko, but they never quite get it right. He's so characteristic and unique. Uh, he created the the uh, the helicarrier and uh, Hydra and life model decoys and Madam Hydra. Uh, we only get him for two issues of the X-Men, number 50 and number 51, although he did the cover on 49 as well. But he went on to have a short run on uh, Captain America as well. And much like we're talking about today, he got pretty frustrated with editors trying to, to censor or change his work. And so he kind of left comics and started doing his own thing, focusing more on publishing uh, and music. He formed a, a publishing company called Super Graphics that's been around for a long time. If you go to the website, there's lots of uh, rated R material. So he 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 enjoys uh, some classic nudes <laughs> and some some uh, big busted girls. Uh, I have again, like I've mentioned, I have reached out to Stranko. I may not ever hear back, but I'm a huge huge fan of his work. His pencils in this book are coming after a, a long run of Don Heck and Werner Roth pencils. We love both of them, of course but there is nothing quite like uh, Jim Stranko. Uh, and a few issues after this, we're gonna get Neil Adams on the book. Neil Adams just tragically passed a few months before we record this, uh, but we're big fans. Uh, anyone wanna share any stories about uh, Jim Stranko? Uh, yeah, uh, you or Luis, do you have any at all before I, no. I sound here? Never met him. Uh, and Luis, I'm, I'm gonna take a wild 
leap here of a guest and and yes, you never probably met him, huh? No, I've I've not read I've not met him yet. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> we're going back to Detroit here uh, at one of their shows uh, at least ten years ago, and I was over at uh, <clears throat> I wanted to walk over to Stranko's booth just to say hi. He's so cool, and uh, <clears throat> so I I. I, I had my little talk with him as we always do at shows. And then I went back to my table and like an hour later, Stranko comes over and he's got the originals to um, uh, House of Shadows, number two, is it? Um, <clears throat> House of Shadows, number one, if I'm remembering, remembering this right, had a Ramita cover and he had that eight page, the eight page comic that, it's hard to describe the the what this book did for the art of storytelling because anyone who saw that it it like it like it's, I, I've never taken drugs but it's probably really like taking LSD or something because it was it would expand your mind in a way that wasn't even conceivable until you saw what he did the the way he paced the panels in skinny and long and and it was almost it was like watching a movie. And it was it was perfection itself. There wasn't too much. There wasn't too little. And the inking style and the drawing style was it was literally a perfect comic. So <clears throat> some someday in the future, maybe 500 years from now, that book is going to be looked at as one of the the top, maybe the top 10 of all times. So Jim comes over and shows me these oversized pages from the second issue, <clears throat> all penciled, oversized, 12 by 18 that never made it into the second issue. Mm. And I was looking at these things and, you know, jaw dropping as far as it can go um, anatomically. And I said, for crying out loud, can you get me copies of these? Well, that was like 10 years ago. I'm still waiting for them. Um, <laughs> was a very enigmatic guy. He's, he's very secretive. He's very open. He's a study in contrast. Every kind of contrast that a human can have, <clears throat> that's Steranko. So he's, he's, told, still, he's still very actively involved on Twitter and does like regular interviews on Bravo Network. Uh, I mean, you can still find him active in doing stuff, which is incredible. Uh, much like Roy Thomas, who's just still very active and has this steel trap memory of everything that's passed. Uh, I don't know. I'm a huge fan. Um, <clears throat> Stranko, I've got his phone number. I call him every now and then. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, um, the, the time limit of, of, how long he will talk to you is, is, is not, not infinite. It's, it's very finite. <clears throat> a lot of people do that to you, don't they? They, they're what they welcome you for a certain amount of time and then they just close it off. Yeah. No, um, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> you know, Chad, you being somebody in the mental health field, you could probably spend a couple hours with strength on the couch and, and, <clears throat> you know, clinically, um, diagnosis guy and learn more about the human race than any other five people. <laughs> a lot of guys in the business are like that. They're, they're really bizarre people. Um, and of course, some of them, you know, probably rank geniuses. The only real genius I know in comics was, was Jack Kirby. Hmm. Literally. Um, <clears throat> he's the Einstein and Isaac Newton of our time. I mean, what this guy did and the way his brain worked, I remember Roz, Roz walking up and I, um, 
I said, Roz, how does Jack keep all this stuff in his head? This was the DC days when he was doing the new guys. Yeah. I said, well, Roz said, well, I asked Jack that, that one day. And he goes, I don't know. I just do. Well, that's, that's, that's a Jack Kirby answer right there. Yeah. He was a man of few words and Stan Lee was a man of many, 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 many words. <laughs> they, were, they were, you talk about a study in contrast, the two of those, uh, th those guys working together. Uh, it's amazing. They came up with what they did given their very different styles and personalities. Well, that's a good point, Chad, because throughout history, there's been a lot of, a lot of opposites working together in tandem. Me and Barrett are like that. Sure. Gilbert Sullivan are like that. Um, <clears throat> Hannah and Barbera were just like that. There's something really weird in the air. I, I don't know if in Hugh and Louise have met people like this, but <clears throat> I'm betting Hugh has. Um, <clears throat> Louise, have you met people like that in your young life where <clears throat> it's a study in contrast? They get together. Um, <clears throat> uh, Lennon and McCartney were completely uh, different people. And somehow when they get together, <clears throat> it's very different than the solo material they end up turning out uh, um, as solo artists. It's just different. Being and a Explain that stuff. Being a child of the 80s, I'll refer everyone back to the famous Paula Abdul song, Opposites Attract. <laughs> yeah, I just got to watch the video not too long ago. That's that's good timing there, Chad. With, uh, with DJ, Scat DJ Cat. Cool Cat. <laughs> MC Scat Cat. Oh, Come my on. God, I got his name wrong. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can't stand yeah. for that. Oh, you, you and I uh, are nearly the same age, but you, yeah, clearly you remember Paula Abdul's videos uh, <laughs> better than I. I think I've seen her in a concert like 10 times, yeah. So with that, we're gonna transition into our review of X-Men number 50. Uh, we have this gorgeous, gorgeous cover of uh, Lorna Dane, who is not yet known as Polaris, floating in front of the X-Men in kind of a rise of energy. At the end of last issue, she's just learned that she's a mutant. And here we see her in a costume. And it is beautiful. It is all yellow and green and black. This might be my favorite X-Men cover from the 60s. Um, and there's some great ones to come, but this one's gorgeous. It's okay if you guys don't like it, but tell me your thoughts on the cover. Oh, I absolutely love it. I think the 70s, well, this is the 60s, but the use of yellow in these earlier comics, it, it, Neil Adams' artwork in particular, it, it, it's an eerie color. It's an unsettling cover color and i feel like they don't use it to that effect anymore you know um it just looks like poison it's great i love this cover i think Ooh. i actually had this issue the poison reference is fantastic Luis, what yeah yeah no it's fantastic and it's very dramatic as well you know um her like just standing over all of them they're all looking up at her like he said like it looks like there's like like this toxicity behind her it looks really cool. And um, the green also, like it stands out, even though, you know, sometimes green and yellow can get kind of tricky to like make it stand out because they're, you know, so, so close to each other, but it, she just stands out amazingly. I uh, I love it. Uh, we, uh, we do not often see the female characters in the 60s ever get the spotlight. Uh, we recently had Jean Grey's brief modeling career in one of the issues, but really she's often just tossed into the background. And, and here's kind of just a barely shift with a new character uh, giving her the limelight. Okay, so let me jump into the first five pages. I'm gonna I'm gonna recap them very briefly here. Uh, we have a lot going on on page one. There's a ton of words 
And then we jump into almost nothing happening on pages two or three, but the art is really beautiful. So it's kind of worth it. Uh, Mesmero, we get a close up of his eyes. They're all spinny hypnosis. Although his skin is miscolored, it should be green. And it is, uh, it is Caucasian here. He has mesmerized both Lorna Dane and Iceman. Uh, he ends up commanding Iceman to be paralyzed and he has just kind of relaxed Lorna. He orders his gang of demi-men uh, who are all latent mutants to go out to the uh, to the van and bring him some coffins so that they can carry these bodies out without suspicion. And there's a really funny line where he says, uh, don't forget to wear a funereal smile as we leave, my friends. There are no unsmiling undertakers, which is, <laughs> which is very uncomfortable somehow. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. Like, I didn't get that it was a coffin and they were supposed to make it look like they were carrying, like it was for a funeral or something. When I read that line, I was like, what? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little creepy. <laughs> um, we, uh, we have this brief association or mention by Mesmero that he knows Magneto. Uh, we'll talk more about that a little later in the issue. We have not seen Magneto since Avengers 53. We believe he's dead in the comics at the time. Uh, but, uh, but Mesmero is loading these two coffins up and returning these two to his giant city of mutants. We get a two page spread with a giant, uh, carving. You guys have seen those cities where they put the letter of the town up on the mountain, right? It's like, uh, S for Springfield or whatever. <laughs> this is giant boulders of city of mutants. And I kind of like to believe that Mesmero who above all else as a showman, uh, literally had this carved over his city that he built, uh, he has a bizarre looking futuristic castle and futuristic cars and all the men are dressed up. Uh, anyway, they, they welcome him back. The man standing at the gate yells, Hail Mesmero, keeper of the flame of Magneto, emperor of evil mutants, as he gives him kind of a zig heil <laughs> as he drives by. Uh, when they get back, we get uh, Mesmero. His costume has changed a little from last time. It's a little less complex. We've got a big M on his belt. The, uh, the swirly whirlies that were all over him aren't there anymore. And uh, Mesmero is full megalomaniacal 60s villain, just ranting as he gives a speech. He has uh, uh, Lord of Dane loaded into something called the Mutant Energy Stimulator, uh, which is meant to awaken her latent mutant power. Uh, she mentioned in the last issue, she's had green hair since she was born, but apparently she doesn't have any idea that she has powers. We learn later in the comics in Peter David's X Factor, he tells a story about how her powers activated when she was a teen. Uh, and it caused the plane crash that killed her biological mother and her stepfather. Uh, and she does not know Magneto's her dad. She's also blocked out this memory. So this is something that was added much later. But at this point, we don't know what her powers are. Uh, we then see the X-Men kind of rushing in. And I'm <laughs> we get uh, with their, they're rushing into Mesmero's City of Mutants. And we get kind of a four panels at the top of the X-Men. And they're each thinking different things. I want to read these out loud quickly. Beast thinks, what gross evil lurks behind that grim gothic facade? Jean Grey thinks, it gives me the screaming memes just to look at it. Angel thinks, that's one cookie jar I'm going to like busted into. And then Cyclops, who's very Shakespearean these last few issues, goes, carefully, a wily mind hides within these murky halls. <laughs> They're very dramatic. And then Cyclops just fucking blasts the door down with an optic blast. Uh, so let me hear your thoughts, guys, on uh, the first five pages. Uh, thoughts on art, story, things that you loved or hated. Uh, what stood out to you here? Yeah, this, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, going back to the city of mutants carved in, into the, the the mountain, I think it, it visually just looks really cool. Also, that like weird design on the city um, with like all these like 
orbs float, like floating around. It's it's a really cool design. But the the city of mutants thing kind of reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Ben Hur. The posters. I th- I think that's the movie. Oh where, sure. Like, it's like like the name is carved into the, this big mountain, and it's just for me, like you said, it's just this really cool visual. Um, and you know what? I at first I did not actually think that City of Mutants was like in canon, just like carved into a mountain. But I I like that idea. He's just he's off for the dramatic. There's a there's a Mesmero story later um, where he is performing basically as a guy who hypnotizes crowds of people. It's in a Spider-Man book, and they basically just talk about him as he just wants a ton of fucking attention. Everybody look at me. Everybody love me. Uh, later portrayals of him show him as a very creepy, narcissistic kind of egomaniac. And we're, we'll talk more about him in a minute, but it fits. If he had this carved into the mountain, I could see it happening for his character. Uh, what were your thoughts on the first five pages, Hugh? Just uh, as a writer, I, I'm always struck old comics were the thought balloons, you know, where you could really get into what a character was thinking at the moment. I mean, now they use, you know, captions with a logo and it's almost the same as thought balloons, but it's also inevitably darker and more serious as comics are now. And it's more um, narrating the story instead of what the character's thinking in the moment. And uh, it's just fun to read that again. It's, I miss that. I, I miss it a lot. Um, yeah. I love how Stranko draws these heroes. I love the angles he puts them at. I love the colors and the vibrancy. It's really beautiful. Okay, I want to pause for just a second. Hugh, you wrote for a book called X-Men Unlimited. It's the second volume. At the time, it was kind of an anthology series. We had different creators coming in. Uh, each issue seemed to feature two or three or four stories. Telling char- telling stories of characters were kind of done in one. So you'd get eight pages, maybe 10, maybe six to tell a particular story. Now, when you came into it, Mesmero, uh, and we're going to do a longer episode about Mesmero in the near future. I'll announce that later. Mesmero at the time had just finished working for Weapon X, uh, which is a group in Canada that was kidnapping mutants and sending them to concentration camps, which is just fucking messed up. It's a really rough series to read by Frank Thierry. Uh, It kills off a lot of our favorite characters. Mesmero is portrayed as a rapist in that series. He's taken over people's minds, including children, and sending them to their death. This is not a character that many people even think about. If you were to list 100 X-Men villains, he may not even pop on the list, but he's a very creepy character. In this series, he basically is coming across as do what I say, I'm the most important person in the room. Uh, Then we, uh, Frank Thierry brilliantly takes him to a very vulnerable place, reveals that he has a backstory where his father was abusive and he grew up with kind of a very overly involved mother, it seems. She's now dying and Mesmero orders her, don't die, and she dies anyway. And because of this confidence hit, he loses his powers And then Weapon X sends him to the concentration camp, where we presume he is dead. But of course, he survives because comic books. This was kind of the history of the character right before you picked him up. So number one, I want to hear your thoughts about Mesmero. And number two, why the fuck did you choose this guy to write about out of all the options available? Or was he assigned to you? Yeah, no, he was assigned to me. And what they said to me, they sent me the um, Wikipedia entry and the Marvel Wikipedia entry. And they told me he had lost his powers. As ever, almost all the mutants did when Gene um, Wanda Maximoff said mm-hmm. no more mutants. 
And uh, I, I mean, I was familiar with him from Spider-Man, but I didn't know the deep history. And they asked me what I wanted to do. And they gave me, I think, a day or two. And I came back and said, you know, this anybody with powers that are that godlike and loses them is going to be knocked down a peg. The story you just told me doesn't ring a bell. Um, <laughs> Uh, they may have told it to me at the time, but I was just wondering, you know, what would this guy be without his powers? See, and I'm on the, um, I, I used to be on the Marvel handbook. So it was my job to tie all the stories together in one day. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, maybe they told me it. I don't, I don't recall, you know, whether it's they so, did or not. So it's, long the, ago. It's, yeah. it's the next thing, right? Uh, so you yeah. did a gorgeous story with, with uh, Sean Schofield. You said you read, reread this recently. Can you tell us uh, the story? I reread it last night because you brought it up. Um, but, you know, uh, the one cool thing about that is there wasn't a plan to get it painted, but Warren Simons liked it so much that he decided to have it painted, hmm. which is pretty cool because it upped the budget. It's pretty. Um, it's really yeah. pretty. And I think we didn't have the cover until he read the story, and then we got the cover over the backup story, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I was trying to obviously marry the um, the visuals and the wording of the past with the future and put them in a juxtaposition, you know, and show how far he's fallen. And the stakes have never been lower for him and yet never been higher. You know, he used to fight the X-Men and, and these gods, and now he's fighting against the pimp, you know, but personally the stakes have never been higher in his life. And all he needed was one person to tell him they loved him for him, not somebody he mesmerized into loving him or caring for him. And it would change the world for him, you know, and um, it was uh, a little nerve wracking for me to think, you know, I was thinking, um, is it right to have a character need external affirmation so badly? Shouldn't I be writing about a character who's going to validate himself, learn to validate himself? But then I thought to myself, you know, sometimes people just need to be, particularly the X-Men, need to be accepted and told that they can be loved maybe before they can love themselves. So maybe this is the first step for him is to have somebody else have faith in him and to love him um, for himself. Um, so it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, the comic that I had done before my own comic, there was a lot of juxtaposition between the characters, between things that were going on. I really liked telling stories that way. Um, so it was really, really cool. And rereading, I was proud of it. I, mean, I, don't, I don't mind saying that, you know. I, anybody who knows me knows I'm hardly arrogant. <laughs> I'm my own worst enemy, um, my own worst critic. But uh, but yeah, I really liked it. Proud of it. Reading, reading Mesmero's stories, your story in particular, he comes across as just this very broken person. Yeah. Who is so used to telling the world what to think about him. Uh, and now suddenly he has to deal with what the world's like when they can't. Now, of course, he gets his powers back and immediately returns to crazy, megalomaniacal, rapey behavior because that's who he is. I was uh, sorry to see that, but that's what happens when you write for Marvel Comics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, yeah. he's kind of one of the worst guys. I mean, Sabretooth is like the worst worst, right? He's he's a bad dude, but uh, Mesmero might be worse than Mastermind, who is yeah. the, the guy that was like, mind rape Jean Grey and turned her into the Phoenix, right? Like, oh, there's there's more to it than that. But he's a, he's a creepy, creepy villain. Uh, with that, Hugh, will you take us through uh, pages six through 10? Tell us a little bit about what happens and what your thoughts are. Let's do that. Okay, so you've got a big fight here, you know. Um, chums, I think that the Mutant Chamber of Commerce sent this reception committee, that's Angel, 
<laughs> you know, they're all bantering in the, in the, in the Stan Lee um, kind of goofy um, manner, you know, the kind of stuff that led to the 60s Batman and all that kind of stuff, even through like, God, through like uh, Schwarzenegger's movies, you know, where everything's a joke. Um, Beast yells, no jesting. Uh, Cyclops yeah. yells, less jest, more joust. And then Beast yeah. immediately starts cracking jokes again. He's such a hypocrite. <laughs> right. So then you get um, Jean Grey at the bottom of the the issue, the page. She gets in the fight. I may not be as showy as you, gents, but I do make my point. Trusting up a man with his own robes, you know. <laughs> That's her <laughs> signature is, 60s move is just wrapping yeah. someone's clothes around them. And then it's, this is just a bunch of pages of the X-Men just fighting and, you know, knocking off their one-liners or two-liners. Um, and again, the, the use of um, thought balloons to tell the story is just really fun. Um, uh, Angel flies in, okay, Beast, here comes a billiard shot. Eight ball in the side pocket. And he throws and then Beast, you know, ricochets off this guy, this bad guy that he's throwing and just random people jumping around. And that's, I mean, I love these old pages, you know, there's some more fighting on the next page. Um, Then suddenly as the X-Men carry on their counterfeit combat, back to back, a giant plastic bag (laughs) drops around them and good guess, some kind of knockout paper. (laughs) It's fast acting stuff. I'm not describing it well, but some sort of gas attacks the X-Men from above and there's a shh effect. And then the next page, there's some of this green poisony gas swiftly, silently, swiftly, the silent weapon takes its toll and the X-Men sink into swirling oblivion. And, and I just got to uh, point out, Mesmero planned this. He's like, I want to build a room with a giant fucking plastic bag in the ceiling filled with gas that I can drop on in case anyone invades and then I can knock them unconscious. This is so never thought twice. We never thought twice as a kid. It just made absolute sense. Like I never questioned these comics ever. To be honest with you, I still don't. I try to just go along for the ride. That's why a movie has to be so bad to really knock me out. You know, like those these new DC movies. It's like I'm along for the ride, man. I just saw Doctor Strange. You know, I loved it. But then uh, anyway. <laughs> and then um, here comes Mesmero. It is done. Our mortal enemies themselves, mutants, have become toothless tigers. Now we shall return with this triumphant tribute to the great Mesmero. On to Mutant City. All this, this what, alliteration that uh, it was all just, it's all Stanley at art, even though he didn't write it. Um, and that's not even Mesmero. That's just a guy kissing Mesmero's ass. <laughs> that's not Mesmero? I thought nope. it was Mesmero with yellow lighting. Uh, nope, they're, they're going to take him back to Mesmero. Mesmero's still back with Lorna at the machine. Oh, this is Mesmero's orange henchman. Okay, well, nope, I gave nope. him... Well, he got his own battle, so I gave him his own voice. <laughs> um, now it looks like the bottom of this page, Mesmero has uh, Iceman uh, jacked up in some sort of a bubble. Like, he's, he's both on a gurney that doesn't seem to be a gurney. What is going on here? I can't tell from the artwork. He's tied up. He's on the floor, or maybe not. So Mesmero has hypnotized him into being paralyzed, basically. But he's also set a device on him that if he tries to escape, it will blow up and kill him. But he's also got uh, handcuffs and leg cuffs. and yep. He's cuffed up and mesmerized into being paralyzed. And, yep, and paralyzed all at the same time. It's a little extra. It's, yeah, it's efficiency, man. Um, <laughs> it's like... It's weird because it, there's just a bubble, but like you'd think he'd be like completely in a giant bubble, but it's just like half his body and like not even his hands are inside the bubble. 
At least yeah. that it's it's and then there's this boy. weird ass 60s psychedelic chamber in the background these color yeah it's almost it's almost incomprehensible also mesmer looks like some sort of bizarre lizard there his yeah. hand is bigger than his face which you know i've got man i so i've been collecting reprints of original artwork you know um and i've so i've got the cover of daredevil 158 up there 68 first appearance of um electra mm. and i was just struck by Daredevil's hand is bigger than his head. And this is like classic Frank Miller. And I'm like, all right, even the best can get off on here. <laughs> um, and then check out this next panel, the top of page. What is this? Page 10 with this, yeah. this crooked thought balloon where you have to tilt your head to read it. Fascinating. They didn't usually do that back then, did they? These uh, crooked um, text, lettering. Anyway, so yeah, we got Lorna Dane starting to come to activity here, and um, she's she, she's between Mesmero and Iceman, and everybody's very very excited. And hail Mesmero! They, they here come the bad the henchmen back again, and wanting to know how to dispose of the X Men. And Mesmero's like, I have a most gratifying end plan for them all, but it must wait. Meanwhile, let it be known that any resistance on their part shall bring instant death to the one called Iceman. And now there's now there's a uh, uh, captions. All eyes now focus upon the giant electronic transmitter as its whining, crackling corral builds to a deafening crescendo. And finally, utter silence. Then, with a strangely regal step and darkly menacing mien, the involuntary subject of that genetic simulator moves forth. And it's a super sexy girl with green hair. Um, yeah, and here she is. Behold! <laughs> That's the first line. How many times per issue did bad guys say behold in these days, right? It's just almost every other page is behold. <laughs> it's not it's not uncommon. I would like to posit that Mesmero is making all of these demi men uh call it like say hail Mesmero, like he's he's forcing them to do that that gets his little fantasy well that was such a great part of my my issue is i'm not saying my writing but um to have this character who uh, people walked around saying hell mesmero you know and now he's a nobody he's nothing he's got nothing you know he's trying to get with a prostitute and a pimp and you know he's being cuckolded and um, it's just, and you know, this is a guy who people used to hail him, you know? So that's what it was so juicy to take that story and to propel this character, to the very depths of his, uh, uh, you know, how far can you fall? This guy's fallen all the way from a God to a, a peon, to, you know, a, a cockroach. Um, so this is the kind of, I probably read this issue when I was doing research for the character. I don't know. Yeah, this but, is his first. Uh, this is when he first shows up. I would also uh, like to posit that Iceman would be super into this bondage as long as it was Angel, the one that was tying him up. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Iceman's gay now, right? And we know he crushed on Angel as a teenager, so he might have been uh, into it back then. I don't know. Iceman became gay, what, in the early 2000s, I think? Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, they, yeah. Revealed, they revealed he was gay in the early 2000s. So part of our favorite thing analyzing these 60s books is like, ooh, look, Iceman's gay here. Rex Rush Rock to apply it? That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Luis, will you take us through pages 11 through 15? Yeah. Um, so like, like, like he said, 
it's Polaris's first appearance. Well, I mean, I guess she's not Polaris just yet, but it's like the first appearance of her iconic outfit. Um, it's a bit more, it's a little different, but um, she's got the green hair, the green costume, and she looks pretty cool. And she's like throwing up some gang signs or something. Um, and she's, <laughs> <laughs> she's, well, uh, Ma- um, what's his name? Mesmero, he says, I reveal that she is the daughter of Magneto and queen of the mutants. Hail the glorious queen. And Polaris is, she's like, oh, like, I always knew I had some evil in my blood, you know, but now I know, <laughs> you know. And the X-Men are bummed and they're like, oh, man, like, oh, this sucks. Like, Magneto's daughter. And then um, they go, they go, Mesmero mentioned M2 and we just assumed it would be a boy. We never thought it could be a girl. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, like it's uh, just like, uh, come on, Cyclops. So can we take a moment before you continue and just talk about Polaris's costume or Lorna's costume? Uh, what is this headpiece, first of all? I love it, but it's weird. Yeah, I don't I don't know what it's supposed to be like emulating. I, I mean, I guess it kind of uh, mimics her her powers. Like her powers are usually drawn with like these like weird circular shapes. Um but I, I almost know. I almost want to feel like it uh yeah. like it references some sort of culture, but I just I can't quite place it. It's uh it's a very, very strange, unique design. Uh then we have a shoulderless gown that ties around her neck, kind of drapes down her shoulders, uh covers her cleavage, of course, and then we've got uh the sides of her abdomen exposed as it goes down into her kind of green pantsuit. The the helmet design matches what's happening on her wrists with these very elaborate. I don't even know the word to describe these long bracelets uh, that turn into yellow gloves and then kind of the same design over her boots with a skull at the center, kind of mystique style, holding it all together. Uh, it's it's like eyes wide shut. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's eyes wide shut meets Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a 60s uh, orgy outfit. It's gorgeous. I want one. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's very striking. I want one for my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll have to ask her if you're not. (laughs) You guys could ask her for me. I've asked enough. (laughs) You might have a better shot. Like, honey, can you please role play as Lord of Dane from this comic book? (laughs) Please. Yes, please. Please. Put this on on and say, I am the queen of the mutants. Hail me. (laughs) I've been married for 16 years, man. At this point, it's like, will you please touch anything? Just touch something. <laughs> uh, Louis, go ahead and continue, man. Um, and then, okay, so the X-Men are bummed, and, and Gene says, don't, you know, then why don't I break Mesmero's hold on him? Uh, of course, referring to Bobby, who's still um, in, in that trap, and I guess he, like, freezes it? I don't know exactly how he, he breaks the trap, even though it was supposed to explode if he tried anything, but he breaks out, um, and this part was like hilarious where, where Mesmero, he's standing right there and he's like, I sense that Iceman has broken free. And it's like, no shit. Like you're standing right next to you. You just saw him break out of the trap. What do you mean you sense whatever? Clearly Mesmero was lying about the death trap or Bobby forgot, or maybe Gene deactivated it. Right. Maybe it was a whole big bluff. Um, but basically uh, he says, Daughter of the of the of the Emperor Eve, daughter of the Emperor of Evil. So much alliteration. Offer, 
offspring of our beloved leader, now turn your insufferable power to the destruction of those who took your father from us. And Isom is like, no, please, like, you're good. You're better than this, please. And she, like, lifts up her hands very dramatically. And then we get this awesome panel where she just explodes with power and, like, everybody spent, and, well, you think she's about to attack the X-Men, but instead she attacks all of Mesmero's men and they all fly back. And I she, really uh, like how. She looks like Darkstar here. Do you guys know Darkstar? Yeah, I. it looked kind of, kind of familiar. I was like, I, I know I'd seen that like shape before in, in another Marvel comics. I mean, Darkstar uh, came like decades later, but yeah, it reminds me of Darkstar. Right. It's it's a really cool image. And then Iceman, um, Angel catches her because of course she passes out. Um, and Mesmero was like, oh, fuck. Um, and then he, what does he say? He says, your resistance is meaningless, winged fool. Nothing can stand my own cerebral energies. You are all as good as dead. And the X-Men are like, fuck you, we're going to kill you. Or not kill you, but we're going to attack you. And as they're running towards him, the ground like li- like rips up underneath them. And they, you know, they fall back and they're like, oh no, it can't be. And Magneto shows up. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so we're going to learn in a few issues. Very, very quickly. We're going to learn in a few issues. This is not Magneto. It's a robot. There's a weird issue. We'll, we'll talk about it in a few issue reviews. The Sentinels attack Mesmero and they destroy Magneto and he like is blasted to pieces. He's a robot. And it's not it's not cleaned up until years later. In uh, Mark Renwald wrote the handbook entry for Mesmero and uh, or, or excuse me, for Machine Smith. So there's a there's a villain who fought Daredevil named Star Saxon who eventually turns into a robot. He uploads his mind and he becomes this crazy consciousness thing. He, he fights Captain America a bunch. But we, we learn later that Mesmero commissioned perhaps Machine Smith to build him this Magneto robot so that Mesmero could pretend that he's Magneto's friend. And then he built this whole fucking city. So again, this just shows what a big crazy showman Mesmero is because he had himself a Magneto robot built for him, which is nuts. Like, who, who does that? <laughs> yeah, he's he's a huge fan of Magneto, which I was surprised about. I was surprised about. He uh, he just he wants to be in the cool kids club. Uh, any thoughts on these fifteen pages? What did you like or hate? What sits with you as we kind of wrap up that section? Well, like I said before, I I I was surprised at how fast of a read this was. At least for me, it was. I, I'm a person where I struggle reading. I like read very, very slowly, and sometimes I have to like reread to understand what I what I read. But this issue went by really fast, even though there are a lot of thought bubbles and 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 text, of course, because it's the '60s and that was very that was the common way of writing. But the I thought the plot moved along very very fast. Yeah, yeah. Arnold Drake did a good job here. Uh, Hugh, how about you? Anything else? You know, it took me back to my childhood. I used to, I grew up reading comics like this. And this isn't the style that I think is home based for me. You know, I grew up in the 80s, but uh, it's just, it's so wonderfully um, uh, uh, it's so wonderfully of its time. You know, it so encapsulates the what we used to know is the uh, the Silver Age. What do they call it now? Is it still the Silver Age or is it? Yeah, well, I think we would still call this the Silver Age of comics. Even though it's well, not 25 years ago anymore. <laughs> the Golden um, Age referring to the World War II stuff, the Silver right, right, Age right. to the 60s stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so what, then there's the bronze age, then what the modern age. And now, now what is it? I, I think, I think it's, I don't know what they call it now. <laughs> yeah. The we're too freaking old age. That's the, the global warming age. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But um, I, you know, when I look back, again, I'm mostly familiar with Spider-Man, but this just feels like a wonderful, simpler time for me. Um, the, the dialogue and everything, it, it doesn't demand as much of you, but there's also more going on in the subtext if you want to dig it out yourself. Now they're trying to throw the subtext at you with, you know, a, a spatula. They're just throwing it on there. Don't miss this. But back then, as you described with, you know, although it came later, um, the, the, the homosexual subtext, and I, you're literally inventing it here because it wasn't intended by the author. Right. But if there were stuff like that, it's it's you can dig it out. You can look deeper and sort of find it for yourself. Um, and in a lot of ways, these simpler stories led to more complex ideas than what you get today, where people are maybe trying a little too hard. Uh, so I'm going to cover the last five pages just very quickly. We get this backup story starring the Beast. Uh, this is by Arnold Drake as well, with pencils by Warner Roth, inks by John Verporten, uh, and Herb Cooper still on letters. Uh, we we saw a, a, two issues ago the Beast's powers were featured. Last issue we saw the story about how his parents married and his dad got exposed to radiation, and then they had this baby with big old feet and super strength. So we didn't know last time, it, it occurred to me afterward, Hank is one of those very few mutants who's kind of born with their powers. So often powers develop in adolescence, but we're looking at him struggle through childhood here with his powers fully intact. It doesn't show a ton, but his parents are just kind of trying to raise a great kid, despite the fact that he's got extra abilities that he has to learn how to hide. So as a, as a, as a toddler, he's able to lift his whole crib up looking for his ball. Uh, he jumps up on the wall and holds to it to grab a balloon out of the air. He shakes his uncle's hand and squeezes too hard because he's got super strength. Uh, and then we jump all the way to adolescence, where the football coach is just screaming at his team like an asshole. Uh, he says they're terrible. He says, you couldn't catch a marble in a peach basket. <laughs> then he turns and says, I bet I could get any freshman to join this squad. Uh, he turns and sees Hank McCoy, and Hank McCoy says, I don't want to. He's wearing his glasses, but he kicks the ball and it is shattered. Uh, they they put him to the test, bring him onto the team. And ironically, in Steve Rude's uh, series, Children of the Atom, we get to see some more of uh, Beast's days as a football store at the start. That, this is where his code name comes from. They called him a beast on the football field. Uh, we get to see him using his powers very impressively. He gets pretty famous. There's news cameras and, and the, 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 uh, the stadium is filled with people who are watching his football game. And uh, because of that, the box office has what these criminals assume is $25,000. We see three masked criminals who have uh, both masks and hats and suits on show up and they gas the teller and steal her money. Uh, then they run for it because the police are after them. They run into the stadium. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, excuse me, Beast grabs a couple of football helmets and knocks down a couple guys. One of them has a grenade. Uh, he's ready to hold people hostage, but Beast jumps up the goalpost, jumps down and, and defeats this guy. And he's on camera. It's seen by it's seen by thousands of people. It says five million TV viewers are watching. So this guy is now known as not only a student, but he's kind of launched himself into superstardom. Now, we're going to see later in a few issues. Professor X has to come fix this. He kind of deletes everybody in the town's memories of Hank having powers before he's recruited to the X-Men. Uh, but watching on the television is an obscure villain called the Conquistador, 
who uh, who says, oh, look at this amazing lad. It's fate. I need him for my plans. And uh, we're going to continue this next issue where the conquistador goes after Hank McCoy. Uh, what were your thoughts on this little backup story about uh, about Beast? I think it's great to get a little backstories on each of the characters. I think it's a wonderful little addition that gives you just more details. You yeah, know? It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's really fun. I think it makes both the lead story and the backup story less demanding too. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice. And uh, also, well, going back to Steve Rude's Children of the Atom, I was surprised because when I originally read through like these 60s comics, I would sometimes skip over these backup issues as like mostly the Hank the the Hank ones, just because I'm like not the huge the biggest fan of Hank. Um, but I was surprised to when I when I read it for this podcast, um, I was surprised to find out that Steve Root kind of adapted that this storyline um in in children of the atom um it's a little different but i think in that one it's like a it's another high schooler who's like planning to to shoot somebody with like a gun or something and then he stops him in front of everybody and it's like oh you know they cut it they got it on camera and like everybody sees them as a freak so i thought that was interesting that they kind of adapted this backup issue yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun. We uh we get to see more of this in the in the future with Beast and Angel, and then they wrap up these backup stories. Uh, Gene, <laughs> all the boys get multiple arcs. There's like five or six issues for each of them, and then Gene gets one five page backup that just shows her powers, and she's mostly doing housework. <laughs> but we'll get, we'll, get right. we'll get there in a minute. It's actually really beautifully drawn. Uh, this was an absolute delight to sit down with you guys, to get to know Steve Rude, and then uh, Luis to see you again, but Herb also to get to know you. This was so much fun to just nerd out together and hear your stories. I hope you both had a great time today. Uh, we've got a lot more to say about Mesmero and uh, and Beast and everyone else in the near future. Oh, and Lorna Dane, of course, we got to pick up her with the Magneto robot next issue. Uh, we're going to return on Grey Malkin Lane. Uh, we are doing the trial of Namor the Submariner coming up. Uh, and shortly after that, we've got uh, uh, Dan Jurgens joining us for the review of X-Men number 51, the issue after this. Uh, so for Luis and then Herb, where can people find each of you online? And recognizing this is coming out later this month, is there anything you'd like to talk about or plug based on things that you are currently working on? Yeah, uh, well, thank you again for having me. Um, and it was nice to meet you, Hugh. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at LOVS18. Um, there I just kind of post my art and, you know, tweet and whatever. <laughs> and then um, I'm working on uh, the trading card, uh, a trading card series for uh, the new futurists, which is a Substack. Um, so you can look out for that. Wonderful. Love, love, love your art. Big fan, Luis. Thank you. And you? Uh, my current project is, you can find it at armoredkingdom.com. It's a multimedia intellectual property. Uh, it's more of like a tech startup company. Um, we're doing comic books and trading card, a trading card game, an animated series. Um, the, the, the company was started by my wife and her partner, Mila Kunis. And uh, we've got uh, crypto investors and uh, a gaming company. And so it's all this big, big uh, thing. You can go check it out. The first issue of the comic which is the first comic I've written for 15 years, um, is readable at armorkingdom.com. 
and uh, the NFTs are free. So go grab them and have some fun. And uh, that's that's what I'm working on. Yeah. I, I had retired wait. and they dragged me out of it. I teach at UCLA. So oh, <laughs> they dragged me out of retirement to create this thing. And uh, and it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I can't wait to read it. And I, I love how you just casually name drop Mila Kunis right at the end. You're like, oh, by the way. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> a friend and she's partners with my wife on this company. And um, I've sold some TV projects with her. And um, yeah, it's good stuff. It's a she's, lot of fun. She seems like an absolutely delightful person. That's what oh, she's horrific. She's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Chad just, you know, did the, the, the good favor of asking me, What's coming out for me? Well, after all these years and now decades that I've been doing Nexus, Nexus is really the thing that matters most to me, mostly because I'm free to do what I want. And I'm free from the, the editorial nonsense that goes on with the big companies uh, and their, their determined PC way of thinking that's kind of ruined the business. But if you're looking at a book like this, this just came out about a year ago. Gorgeous. It's, it is uh, 300 pages long, and it's so heavy, you don't need to go to the gym. <clears throat> you grab this book and exercise with it. It's 300 pages long. It is literally the proudest moment of my career, and it's, it's entirely put together by me. So and for, our, for our listeners who can't see the image, Steve, tell them what you just held up. What I, what I did, Yeah, that's probably a good thing, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> the book's called The Coming of Gormando, and it's <clears throat> just... One of a uh, one of uh, in a long line of Nexus books that'll be coming out by me uh, that I'll be writing and drawing and lettering and uh, whatever else. Um, <clears throat> the funny thing is, um, this is crowdfunded, and <clears throat> I actually make nothing off this book right here. So, but I would I would encourage uh, <clears throat> you and Louise to to um, to ponder something that. <clears throat> that I've been thinking about for a long time. And that is, if we don't like the way the business is treating us and we don't like the way things are being done, we have the capacity now to do things that sure wasn't around when I was growing up. And it's called the little thing called self-publishing. When you, sell, when you do self-publishing, you are free. Anything you believe that you, that you want to say that is really important, and presumably <clears throat> if it's your work, you obviously think it's important, you go for it, and you are not constricted in any way waiting for a phone call or an email that may never come from those big companies you've always wanted to work for. Um, uh, you got one marvelous assignment in, and that was it. Well, everything you would want to, have, want to have done for Marvel, turn it into your own character and let it fly and have the time of your life, because that's what I'm doing right now with Nexus and the book I just presented there. It has never been easier to get your stuff out there with the uh, the internet and the tools available. It's just kind of a matter of promoting yourself and and developing that name for yourself. I think uh, I think it's gorgeous. I'm a, I'm excited to to look at uh, the book you just held up. It is um, boy, it is something. Um, <clears throat> I've never been a writer, um, <clears throat> but when Mike Barron and I started to go in different directions as far as uh, story goes, um, <clears throat> uh, believe me, I tried to. I tried to find people that could substitute for Baron, but there's no way you can substitute for the great Mike Barron. Um, so it, it was, I was looking at, I was looking in the mirror at myself and I said, okay, rude. It's finally time to learn how to write. <clears throat> so I picked my seven of my favorite comics, looked at them. What do these comics have that made these 
these things perennials. They were just what did they what did they have that I just all after all these years they just they always resonated. They never they never stopped being the most exciting books, <clears throat> and that's how it started. And it just it just snowballs from there. <clears throat> And you learn and you learn and your mind is always ready to pick up signals from everything you see um, uh, for writing. And it's just, it's just, it's just this process. I mean, Hugh knows all about it because he's a writer. Um, I don't know about Luis, but Chad, are you, are you a writer at all? I am. Okay. So you, you know that your mind is always in tune to the, to the next thing that's going to give you a tidbit on, on character to throw into one of your characters. <clears throat> and that's the way life works. We're <clears throat> creative people are always in tune to the things that they're creating and everything goes into the next project yeah. or the project you're working on now. And that's why it's a great life because it's perpetually creative. Well, I think you're, I think you're just an incredible person, Steve. Thank you for all of your work and for the incredible art that you've put out for us over the years. Uh, I look forward to everything you have coming up. Where can people find you online? Well, I, I guess um, that would be under steverud.com. Yeah, yeah, easy uh, enough. That's where I found you. Uh, and yeah. and it, it seems like your wife is kind of your correspondent or manager. She's been lovely to communicate with us. So please, please give her my thanks. I sure will. That's Gino Ginelli, as I call her. Um, anyone under... 50 wouldn't get that reference, but um, yeah, she's um, she's really something. She does the work of about 25, maybe 30 people. Mm-hmm. I just draw the books. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today, man. Uh, have a beautiful week, and I'll, I'll email you around the time we're putting this episode out, okay? You and Luis, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and Chad, you're, you're fantastic at what you do. I thanks. appreciate you letting me join you. I'm so happy to have you here, man. Thank you very much. Great to meet you. Well, hey, everybody, this has been a blast. Thank you for your time and talents this afternoon uh, and for your patience as we we're out a little long. Uh, I appreciate you both. Uh, We'll see you guys all back here next time on uh, Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Graymalkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Graymalkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Graymalkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Graymalkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Graymalkin Lane.